On June 11th and 12th, make sure to join They Walk Among Us for CrimeCon in the UK. Held at Leonardo Royal Hotel and Spa in St. Paul's, London, it's the perfect weekend away for people with an interest in true crime and forensics. Get books signed by your favourite true crime authors. Learn CSI techniques. There's also Podcasters Row and our favourite police dog demonstrations. For a weekend with like-minded people, make sure to use the promo code TWAU for 10% off ticket prices with an exclusive merch set to be collected from us on Podcast Row. For more information, go to crimecon.co.uk and remember to use the promo code TWAU for 10% off. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, incomprehensible crimes committed against two women in their home in Seattle. The hunt for the ruthless perpetrator, the pain, the courage, and justice that followed. Welcome to episode 18 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. During Pride Week 2008, they got engaged. Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper had come a long way. They had both grown up conflicted about their sexuality, but by the time they met, they were proud of who they were. It had not always been that way. Teresa Butts grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Along with her ten siblings... Teresa was raised in a deeply religious family. She had been in turmoil. There were times when Teresa would pray not to be attracted to women. When she eventually came out, it was difficult for her parents to accept. Jennifer Hopper had a difficult upbringing in Seattle, where Teresa had many brothers and sisters. Jennifer spent most of her young life with just her mother. From a young age, Jennifer witnessed her mother's struggles with addiction and depression. She often had to help provide care and support. Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts met in Seattle in 2007. They bonded over many things, but music was a huge part of both their lives. Jennifer enjoyed singing and wanted to perform. One of Teresa's brothers, Norbert Jr., was an actor in many acclaimed musicals. After around a year together, same-sex marriage had still not been legalised in Washington State, so like many same-sex couples, Jennifer and Teresa opted for a commitment ceremony instead. They were building a life together living in South Park, a neighbourhood in Seattle. The couple set a date for their ceremony the following year, September 2009, 
and picked out the dresses they wanted to wear. A few months before the big day on July 17th, they went to their favourite diner Loretta's for dinner. Sitting in the booth they always sat in, they spoke about their future after their commitment ceremony. What they wanted from life. Teresa dreamed about opening a cafe movie theatre and calling it The Real Cafe. They even spoke about starting a family and having children. Life together was just beginning, and they were in love. The next day, they went out on a day trip to a microbrewery bus before checking in with the dressmaker to see how Jennifer's dress was turning out. They had been invited to go and stay with friends that night, but after such a long day, they chose to just go back to their home and grill some steaks for dinner. Teresa spoke to her mother on the phone in the backyard while Jennifer prepared the rest of the meal in the kitchen. Afterwards, Teresa told Jennifer that she was feeling good about the conversation she'd had. Her parents had religious objections to their relationship, but her mother had indicated she was considering attending their commitment ceremony. There were record temperature highs in Seattle that July, and in the evenings the house was stifling hot. They left a couple of windows open before locking the door and going to bed. Jennifer woke up suddenly after midnight. At first she thought she was dreaming when she saw a naked man standing by the bed next to Teresa with a knife in his hand. Then he suddenly put the knife to her throat. He told her to keep quiet. Jennifer realised it was a living nightmare. The man told them he just wanted sex and ordered Teresa to strip. She tried to dissuade the intruder and told him she was on her period. He sexually assaulted Teresa while Jennifer lay motionless, too terrified to move because the six-inch knife was still in the attacker's hand. After he instructed Teresa to perform oral sex on Jennifer, she pretended to as he walked around the room closing the windows. He then raped Jennifer and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Finally, it seemed as though the terrible assault had ended. He asked Jennifer and Teresa if they had any money, and they told him to take whatever he wanted. They begged him not to hurt them. He replied, Don't get too excited. That was just round one. When he began to assault Teresa once again, Jennifer put her arm as close as she could to her fiancé so she would know she was not alone. While the man raped Jennifer, Teresa prayed aloud. Jennifer was too frightened to speak. She thought it would be worse if the man knew how much she loved Teresa. At one point he apologised when the knife scraped Jennifer, which gave them hope that the ordeal would be over soon. He asked if he seemed like a good person, 
and Teresa courageously put her hand on his chest and said, I'm sure there is some good in here. Jennifer tried to encourage the attacker to leave by saying someone would be calling over at 5am to collect them for a wedding. The man bought the lie, but said he would be long gone by then. Once again he assaulted Jennifer, but this time Teresa attempted to reach for the knife. The assailant saw her and warned her not to, before saying, I know you're going to call the police. They all do. But I'm going to be long gone. I always am. Jennifer said, Maybe we won't. While pointing at Teresa, he replied, Well, you might not, but she will. The attacker took the women into another room of the house, the place where he had undressed before waking them. He turned on the light and pulled another smaller knife out of a pair of jeans he had left on a guest bed. He made them go back into the bedroom before ordering them to lie down on the bed on their backs. He put one of his knees on each of them to pin them down. He had a knife in each hand and began cutting then stabbing them both. Jennifer felt like the more she struggled, the more she bled so she stopped moving and waited for the end. However, suddenly Teresa kicked the man off the bed. The man punched her in the face, but she pushed him back using a metal bedside table. Teresa then used the table to break the window, and she climbed out over the shards of glass and ran towards the street. She made it to the end of the driveway before she fell to the ground at the curb. The man ran from the room while Jennifer went to the front door. She struggled to open it because her hands were too slippery from the blood, both hers and Teresa's. Neighbours on South Rose Street had heard glass smashing and screams for help. Jennifer Lutz called 911 when she saw the smash window at Jennifer and Teresa's home. It was just after 3am. Israel Rodriguez noticed a woman screaming in the middle of the street and ran inside to tell his cousin Sarah to call for help. 14-year-old Diana Ramirez had gone outside to help and saw Jennifer trying to knock on a neighbour's door. She took off her sweater and gave it to Jennifer to try and stop the bleeding from her neck. Sarah was on the phone to 911 when she saw Teresa lying motionless on the ground. She put Teresa's head on her lap while the dispatcher tried to keep her calm. Sarah pleaded with Teresa to wake up and keep breathing because help was on the way. Emergency workers from a nearby fire station were dispatched to the scene. Thomas Berg was the first officer to arrive. Because there had been a stabbing, the officer and the responders from the fire station had to wait for backup before they could approach the area. They could hear Jennifer screaming from down the street. Soon the area was illuminated by the lights from emergency vehicles. Officers Berg and Abella could see Teresa lying on the pavement. 
Jennifer was standing beside her. They were both covered in blood. More officers arrived to clear the area and try to locate the suspect. One team entered the house to make sure the assailant was not inside. A trail of blood led from the hallway to the main bedroom, and a large knife was on the floor. The pattern of blood illustrated just some of the events that had unfolded both in and out of the house. Bloody footprints and fingerprints from the assailant. Blood-stained underpants and blood smeared on the doors of neighbours' homes as Jennifer had tried to get help. A sniffer dog and canine handler went to the property, where the dog was able to pick up a scent that led from the bathroom window through an alley behind the house and across a community playing field. They had done well tracking the intruder so far, but at the end of the field, the trail went cold. Jennifer Hopper did not want to leave Teresa even though she needed medical attention at a hospital. She wanted someone to call her mother and tell her she loved her. People had gathered to try and help in any way they could, and Jennifer explained, He told us if we did what he asked us to do, he wouldn't hurt us. He lied and she reluctantly got into an ambulance. She called out to Teresa that she loved her. Jennifer was taken to Harborview Medical Center where her condition was stabilized. She had sustained multiple lacerations to the left side of her body, mainly concentrated on her neck and arm. One cut had severed her external jugular vein, but this type of injury clots swiftly so it is not life-threatening if it is treated quickly. Teresa Butts, on the other hand, was pronounced dead at the scene. She had sustained eight lacerations to her throat, wounds to her head, left arm, and a fatal wound to her chest that had penetrated her heart. She also had three broken teeth from being punched as she fought off the attacker. The suspect was nowhere to be found, which terrified people in the neighbourhood. He could be living amongst them or waiting to strike again. Most locals had been sleeping with their windows partially open to try and cool down, but they would not do that again. Describing hearing cries from his home across the street, Diana Ramirez's father Nicholas said, I heard this lady say, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Then, tell my mum I love her. And those were the last words I heard from her. Teresa and Jennifer's neighbour also told the press that his daughter was staying with relatives out of fear of the suspect returning. Ramirez said, She's in shock and doesn't want to come home. I'm worried because as far as I know, he's out there on the loose. The police tried to ease the public fear at a community meeting the day after the attack. Still, locals were concerned about how much time it had taken for officers to arrive at the scene after multiple 911 calls. 
Hundreds of people gathered in the South Park Community Centre where the police officer Renee Witt described what had happened as, quote, one of those types of crimes that tears at the fabric of a community. The Seattle Police Department distributed flyers with a description of the assailant, a black male, aged in his late 20s or early 30s, around six feet tall with a slim but muscular build and a thin moustache. As investigators processed the evidence at the scene and spoke to Jennifer Hopper at the hospital, mourners began to pay tribute to Teresa Butts. She was the ninth of 11 children. Her brother Tim said Teresa was more than able to keep up with her eight brothers in any sport. In an interview with the Seattle Times just days after his sister's murder, Tim spoke about her life. Growing up amongst a large family outnumbered by boys in St. Louis, Teresa was very athletic and performed well in any sport she tried. She obtained a business degree from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. She worked on a cruise liner for a time. Afterwards, she moved to Seattle to work for one of her brothers and eventually bought a home to settle down in South Park. She was employed as the manager of an office building when she first met Jennifer Hopper. In 2008, Teresa began working on the board of directors at the Compass Centre, helping low-income and homeless people access services and find housing. Her brother Tim said, Teresa was just full of energy and life and laughter. Tim spoke about the influence Teresa had on him, despite her being his little sister. He recalled a trip up Tiger Mountain where Teresa had been hang gliding. Her brother said, My sister could talk me into a lot of things, but not jump off a mountain. As people struggled to come to terms with the horrific crime and the tragic loss of Teresa Butts, the police were working to locate the suspect. A technical examination of the crime scene had enabled investigators to collect a substantial amount of physical evidence. A pair of khaki shorts were found in the bedroom. They were stained. A DNA sample was extracted. A palm print was discovered in the bathroom, as were footprints inside the house. The investigators determined it was likely the assailant had entered and exited the home through the bathroom window. The screen had been removed, and there were bloodstains on the window ledge. More prints were found in the bath below the window. There was no time for the suspect to cover his tracks or hide the mess, as the women had taken him by surprise fiercely fighting for their lives. The DNA was cross-referenced, and a match came up on the screen. The profile of a man wanted for a break-in the previous year. On June 24th, CCTV footage from the break-in was released to the media, showing a man walking around with a pit bull. The footage was clear, and this evidence proved vital. 
Within hours, three separate people called to say they recognised the attacker. A King County prosecutor identified the suspect as the defendant in a case he was trying. Furthermore, an officer called to say he had seen the man and his dog just that morning. The suspect had got onto a bus wearing a green jacket and dirty jeans. He had a pit bull with him. When the driver asked the man to take his dog off the seat, he launched a verbal assault berating the driver for being an immigrant. The police responded to this incident and warned the dog owner, but they did not detain him. Little did they know that he was wanted for serious offences, including rape and murder. The man's mother called too. She said she knew it was her son, and she recognised his dog. His name was Isaiah Kalebu. At the same time, the police were trying to locate Isaiah Kalebu. Teresa Butts' loved ones were preparing to lay her to rest. Her remains had been sent back to Missouri, and her funeral was held in St. Louis. Jennifer Hopper, who had been released from the hospital, attended, but did not want to be identified as Teresa's partner at the time. Later on July 24th, a private memorial was held at one of Jennifer and Teresa's favourite bars. It was here that Jennifer was informed that they had caught the man who had brutalised her and murdered her fiancé. Isaiah Kalebu was located and arrested just after 6pm that evening. After he was taken to the station, investigators noticed bloodstains on his clothing. They also realised he was not wearing any underwear. The item of clothing had been found at the crime scene. A cheek swab was taken and the DNA was tested against 13 samples collected from the crime scene. They all matched. Samples from the jeans Kalebu was wearing contained a mixture of DNA, for which Kalebu, Teresa and Jennifer were possible contributors. After being notified of the arrest, Jennifer Hopper was asked to identify the suspect by watching video footage. She heard his voice on trial footage located by the Stranger newspaper. It was him. Kalebu was arrested and scheduled to be charged in court the next day. Isaiah Kalebu was known to the police in Pierce County and King County. Police in North Seattle had been called to his home numerous times when fights between his parents became physically violent. His father had emigrated from Uganda and married his mother, Denise. She already had a daughter, Deborah, from a previous relationship. Like his father, Kalebu was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and he was sent to a religious boarding school. He stayed there because of behavioural and developmental problems. His mother was not equipped to handle the turbulent nature of their home life. She was disabled and her situation was made worse by the beatings inflicted on her by her husband. 
Kalebu's Aunt Rachel was more involved with his progress in school, mainly because his father had purposefully neglected to place his mother's contact details on school forms. Ultimately, Kalebu was expelled for bringing in a knife. Although he was extremely intelligent, Kalebu had numerous social and behavioural issues. He had had ambitions to become a pilot, but they were shattered when he discovered he was colourblind. Social services were involved with the family many times, but they did not see any reason to intervene. Kalebu's mental health began to decline, and he became dangerously unpredictable. His mother and sister tried in vain to get him professional help, but they were turned away as he was not then deemed a danger to himself or to others. At times, Kalebu seemed delusional. On one occasion, after informing his sister he had found a place he could call his own, Kalebu walked into a business property and told all of the staff that he was an African king who owned the building. He was arrested and assessed at Harborview Medical Centre, where he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Two days later, on March 29, 2008, Kalebu's mother told him he would have to take the medication prescribed for his mental health or move out. This enraged him, and he told her to enjoy her last day on earth. She grabbed a pair of scissors to protect herself, and Kalebu told his mother, You're going to die. You're no match for me. Those scissors are no match for me or my dog. After he left armed with a six-inch knife, his mother called the police. The next evening, Kalebu turned up at her house again and smashed the windows of her new car. He then ran to his sister's home and broke the window on her front door. He also swung a dog chain at his mother, hitting her in the head and causing her to fall to the ground. His sister had to forcibly restrain him until the police arrived. Isaiah Kalebu was charged at the King County Superior Court with two counts of domestic felony harassment and malicious mischief. Although he denied having any mental illness, Kalebu was sent for an evaluation in April 2008. On May 15th, he was released and was sent back to court for a hearing. Doctors at Western State Hospital also diagnosed Kalebu with bipolar disorder and felt he was not competent to stand trial. He was sent for a competency restoration, which brings about a person's ability to become competent to stand trial, meaning they can understand the charges against them and assist their legal representation. This meant that he was involuntarily committed to Western State Hospital for a further period of time. By August, the presiding judge, Justice Gain, released Kalebu to his Aunt Rachel's care, under the conditions that he would not consume drugs or alcohol, possess any dangerous weapons, or have any contact with his mother. Kalebu was also told he had to attend sessions at a community health centre, take all of the medications prescribed to him, 
and he would have to send his medical records from each visit to the court so Judge Gain could make sure he was abiding by the conditions of his release. After being released to his aunt's care in late August, Galebu attended just one appointment at Cascade Mental Health Care, where he was prescribed the medications lithium and Zyprexa. After this, he failed to attend any more appointments. The centre did not inform the court, and the judge did not inquire if Kalebu was following the court's instructions. A pretrial hearing for the domestic violence case was held in April 2009. Kalebu temporarily agreed to a plea deal, but withdrew his plea when he was asked to submit a DNA sample. If he had, his DNA might have been matched to the DNA found at the break-in a year prior. His mother allegedly declined to testify against him, and he believed the case would be thrown out. Kalebu and his pit bull Indu were still living with his aunt and her lodger JJ Jones in June 2009, when Kalebu was arrested for harassing an animal control officer in Cirque Park. Kalebu had Indu off the leash, and when he was asked to restrain his dog by the animal control officer, Kalebu proceeded to follow him around, insulting the officer and intimidating him. Kalebu was holding a golf club when the police arrived, and after he failed to comply with their instructions, he was tasered twice. This did not subdue him, and the officers had to deploy high-powered beanbag rifles in order to complete the arrest. Kalebu was charged with obstructing law enforcement and resisting arrest the following day at Pierce County Superior Court. Communications between jurisdictions was poor, meaning the judge did not have access to the details. Rachel Kalebu was waiting in the gallery for over an hour, her nephew's case to be heard. She told the judge that Isaiah Kalebu was bipolar and said she would take care of him. When the judge agreed, she thanked him. Rachel had always been there for Kalebu. From his youth, she had offered him much-needed stability, liaising with his school, posting his bail, and giving him a place to stay. Kalebu was released to live with his aunt six days later on July 6th. But on July 8th, she went back to Pierce County Superior Court to file a restraining order against her nephew. A petition states that Kalebu had threatened to harm his aunt many times and commanded her around, quote, as if she was his junior. Rachel Kalebu asked that the court impose a number of conditions, including prohibiting her nephew from coming within 20 feet of her and directing him to take his medication. She was granted a temporary restraining order until a hearing could be held. In the early hours of the next day, July 9th, a fire broke out at Rachel Kalebu's home in University Place. Firefighters found her body that morning, and later on, when the fire was out, 
arson investigators discovered the body of J.J. Jones in the basement. When the scene was cordoned off for processing, Kalebu walked up and stood amongst the worried crowd as he watched emergency responders search through the charred remains of his aunt's house. Detectives recognised him and asked Kalebu some questions. He said he had lived in the woods since his aunt had kicked him out. Investigators did not have cause to make an arrest, so Kalebu was released at the scene. Rachel Kalebu's brother Joshua told the Seattle Times that he was almost certain it was going to happen. Speaking about Isaiah Kalebu, Joshua said, He's been diagnosed bipolar and, you know, he's gotten into trouble and been arrested a couple of times. And Rachel bailed him out because she was an affectionate person. And the end result is what you see. Rachel Kalebu was born in Uganda. Her family, including Kalebu's father, had moved to America years earlier. Speaking about Rachel, Kalebu's mother Denise said, She practically raised him. He's been here and she's been taking care of him all the time. JJ Jones had been living with Rachel Kalebu as a lodger for 15 years. The former NFL player was one of the first professional black quarterbacks in the 1970s. Originally from Memphis, Tennessee, Jones had moved in with Rachel to help her take care of a sick relative. And after they passed away, he stayed on as a lodger, living in the basement of her home. Sergeant Ed Troyer with the Pierce County Sheriff's Office said that they were treating the fire as suspicious due to the events that had unfolded between Rachel and Kalebu in the days prior. The following day, Isaiah Kalebu missed a hearing at King County Superior Court for the charges relating to the attack on his mother, so the prosecutors asked Judge Gain to issue a bench warrant for his arrest. Judge Gain decided to reschedule the hearing for July 13th. On that day, Kalebu was kicked out of the emergency accommodation he had been placed in following the fire. He attended the hearing where Deputy King County Prosecutor Zach Hostetter asked Judge Gain to remand Kalebu into custody, but again Judge Gain declined and set a review hearing for August 3rd. Isaiah Kalebu had been represented by defence attorney Teresa Griffin for a number of months, but she withdrew her services because Kalebu's aunt Rachel had been calling her to ask for help before Rachel was killed in the fire. This meant that Attorney Griffin could possibly be called as a witness if Kalebu was prosecuted for the double homicide, which was still an ongoing investigation. Teresa Griffin withdrew her services at a hearing on July 17, 2009. That night, Kalebu was stopped by the police for attempting to steal a bike. He was questioned at the scene but released after being informed the charges would be referred to the court. In the early hours of the next morning, Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper were brutally attacked in their home for 90 minutes and Teresa died as a result of her injuries. 
Kalebu was at hearings after the murder too, including one on July 21st where he had his dog Indu with him. It was the deputy prosecutor in court with Kalebu who had contacted the police when they released footage of the suspect wanted for the attack. On July 25th, 2009, the day after he was arrested in connection with the attack, Isaiah Kalebu was brought to King County District Court. He was remanded into custody on a $10 million bond pending the outcome of the investigation into the attack on Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper a week earlier. Scott O'Toole, the senior deputy prosecutor, said, The defendant is somebody who proves a grave risk of danger based on the underlying charges here and the pending trial, charges involving his mother, and he's a person of interest in the Pierce County double homicide. Kalebu was brought back to court three days later and charged with aggravated murder and first-degree rape. The prosecutor's office considered whether or not to seek the death penalty at trial. With Kalebu's history of mental illness, they needed to determine whether or not he was competent enough to face capital punishment. The King County prosecutor Dan Satterberg said that Jennifer Hopper's account of the attack gave the police no indication that Kalebu's mental state contributed to his actions. Prosecutor Satterberg said, There is nothing about the conduct of the defendant during that time that suggests that he was under any delusion, that he was acting under any symptom of mental illness. Kalebu's new defence attorney, Philip Tavell, said that his client's mental state was clear. Judge Gain was heavily criticised for not remanding Kalebu into custody on any of the numerous times the defendant appeared before him. The judge's office released a statement following Kalebu being charged with murder. It read, Crimes such as those alleged to have been committed by Isaiah Kalebu leave our entire community reeling. Families in both King and Pierce County are in mourning and will never be the same. The community has reached out to try and comfort these families. The court cannot comment on cases which are ongoing. However, it must be remembered that each one of us is entitled to be presumed innocent when we are brought before the court, and the judges are required to apply the law in making bail decisions, some of the most difficult decisions faced by judges. Each year, judges in King County Superior Court make thousands of such decisions, each judge striving to find the appropriate balance between the presumption of release contained in Supreme Court Rule 3.2 and other provisions of that same rule that require protection of the community. The judge considers testimony and written documentation for both the prosecuting attorney's office and from defence counsel before making a decision. The vast majority of these decisions on cases involving adults are made by just two judges. The chief judge of the Maling Regional Justice Centre in Kent, the position now held by Judge Gain, and the chief criminal judge in Seattle. Isaiah Kalebu's dog was seized following his arrest and placed in the Seattle Animal Shelter. 
Kalebu had to surrender ownership of Indu. The shelter said that Indu was a good-natured animal aged between three and five years old and weighed around 100 pounds. His distinctive appearance was one of the factors that led to Kalebu's identification and arrest, and Indu was ultimately rehomed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On September 12th, the day Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper were meant to be holding their commitment ceremony at a yacht club on Lake Union. Jennifer held a memorial service. Hundreds of people came to pay their respects and speak about Teresa. Just as the ceremony had been replaced with a memorial service, Jennifer had to replace the vows she had planned on exchanging with Teresa. In Eli Sanders' book, While the City Slept, he recounts the words Jennifer spoke at the service. She said, I promise to live. I promise to love. I promise to give. I promise to love. I promise to sing. I promise to dream. And I promise to forgive. Teresa Butts, you were the best thing that ever, ever happened to me. And you once told me that you were lovable, but you were leaveable. And so I want you to look around this room right now. We will never leave you. None of us. Jennifer Hopper was not ready to be named in the media at the time. She was simply referred to as Teresa's surviving partner in most articles out of respect for her wishes. In an interview with the Seattle Times in December 2009, Jennifer spoke about her life before and after that night in July. She discussed her fears since the incident, saying she could not close her eyes without worrying that she would wake up again to another attack. Jennifer was actively trying to get her life back by attending counselling and self-defence classes. She said, It was ultimately Teresa's bravery and ability to think physically that saved my life. Teresa would see this as a positive healing movement. It's about taking a bad situation that left everyone scared and turning it around and creating a movement where people can take back their safety. Following her murder, Teresa's friend set up a not-for-profit organisation called the Angel Band Project. Her brother, musical theatre actor Norbert, joined the project, which aims to, quote, capture the power in the music to help others heal from the effects of sexual violence and create the country's first music therapy program designed to treat survivors of sexual violence. They recorded an album that Jennifer called a musical reaction. She later said, Teresa saved my life that night. It was a poignant gift to me 
and I made a promise that I wouldn't just survive, but thrive and follow the dreams that we had. Norbert Butts was also trying to move forward. He went back to his highly anticipated theatre show Catch Me If You Can and donated a portion of the cost of each ticket sold to the Compass Centre, where Teresa had volunteered. Isaiah Kalebu's legal proceedings continued in the same fashion as his prior hearings. In January 2010, he asked the judge if he could fire his public defender because Kalebu did not trust him. The defendant declined to go for any psychological evaluations despite being faced with the prospect of the death penalty. He was held in King County Jail where he hoarded his medication denied he was experiencing mental health problems and attempted to take his life on a number of occasions. In April 2010, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg announced that his office would not be seeking the death penalty due to Kalebu's history of mental illness. A press release by the prosecutor's office read, while we do not believe that the history of his mental illness rises to the level of a defence to the criminal charges, we do find that it meets one or more of the statutory criteria set forth in the law that contributes a mitigating factor for purposes of the capital punishment statute. At a three-day competency hearing, the prosecution believed Kalebu was consciously acting in a way that he believed would lead him to being found incompetent to stand trial. An evaluation carried out at Western State Hospital found that Kalebu was able to stand trial in June 2010, but he was sent for another assessment in August. A mental health expert retained by the defence found Kalebu incompetent following his actions at a July hearing when the defendant declared himself as both the King of America and a political prisoner. Another competency hearing that had been scheduled for November 2010 was delayed, while the court reviewed reports compiled by medical professionals. Several doctors evaluated Isaiah Kalebu during the lead-up to the trial. Dr. Maria Lamberis outlined some of the impressions Kalebu gave her during the nine hours of interview she had with him in the book While the City Slept. She had been asked to compile a report on Kalebu's life and mental state to determine whether or not the state should seek life imprisonment as opposed to the death penalty. Dr. Lamberis diagnosed Kalebu with bipolar disorder and also said he had a history of both manic and depressive episodes and a mixed character disorder with borderline and narcissistic features. She believed that the way Kalebu's father had highly stigmatised Kalebu's mother's depression led Kalebu to deny he was mentally ill. During the interviews, Kalebu spoke about working for the police investigating sex crimes and government conspiracies. This delusional behaviour, according to Dr Limberis, was a, quote, demonstration of his psychotic, disorganised, fragmented and defective function, 
is using very primitive psychological defences to keep himself from total decompensation. His sense of self is very damaged. His grandiosity serves to keep him from total disintegration. His judgement and reality testing are impaired. He has no insight into his illness and is consciously trying to appear sane. This report, as well as Jennifer Hopper and Teresa Butts's family stance on capital punishment, led to the death penalty being taken off the table. Isaiah Kalebu walked a fine line. He was found incompetent enough to face the death penalty, but not mentally impaired enough to avoid standing trial. The King County prosecutor had said that Kalebu's history of mental illness did not rise to the level of a defence against the criminal charges. Kalebu's latest counsel consisted of defence attorneys Michael Schwartz and Ramona Brandis, despite the defendant's best efforts to fire them and represent himself. Attorney Brandis told Judge Hayden presiding over the case, that Kalebu's mental state had deteriorated in prison and he had refused meals for two consecutive days. Judge Hayden then asked Kalebu why he was not eating and Kalebu replied that the guards were poisoning him. Kalebu was committed to Western State Hospital for another evaluation and just four days later the report from the hospital concluded that he was competent to stand trial and they believed that he had no mental illness. The forensic psychologist retained by the defence, Dr David Dixon, had found that Kalebu was not competent to stand trial, and the contrasting reports led to Kalebu being sent back to Western State Hospital again. Once he was released, there was a contested competency hearing held. The most recent report from Western State Hospital said that Kalebu had not presented with any diagnosable symptoms of a major illness or any signs of cognitive impairment. The staff felt that Kalebu may have been malingering, meaning he was consciously faking his behaviour to seem as though he was incompetent. The report read, Mr Kalebu has the capacity to understand his legal situation to communicate effectively with counsel in his own defence when he so chooses. One doctor who had evaluated Kalebu at Western State Hospital later spoke about the defendant's intelligence, saying, He has a wide vocabulary. He mentioned the amount of time that Nelson Mandela had been in a cell. He quoted Nietzsche. He quoted Oscar Wilde. He was much more well-spoken and came across as having a much wider fund of knowledge than most defendants we interview, and probably many of the star. Forensic psychologist Dr Dixon re-examined Kalebu and said that it was possible that he was malingering in order to delay or prevent the trial. Kalebu's behaviour was not controlled enough for it to be faked entirely although he seemed capable of acting appropriately when it suited him to portray himself as sane, he was unpredictable. Throughout the pre-trial hearings, Isaiah Kalebu adamantly denied being mentally ill, 
but he was also prone to outbursts. Kalebu told the judge and everyone else around him to shut the fuck up so he could explain why he wanted to fire his attorneys. At one hearing, Kalebu declared, I deserve way better than this. I've accomplished so much shit in my life. I am a fucking emperor, and you guys treat me like this. I'm a million times better than you guys. You are fucking taking advantage of the situation. Kalebu would go on to spit in his attorney's face. The trial was scheduled for June 2011, but Kalebu's behaviour at pre-trial hearings made Judge Hayden concerned that there would be a mistrial. Kalebu was already restrained and had to wear a spit hood at any hearings, but jail commander William Hayes asked Judge Hayden if correction officers could place an electroshock sleeve on Kalebu during the trial. This device, known as a bandit, would allow jail staff to stun the defendant if he began to act out in the courtroom. The legal representatives for the state and Kalebu also considered having a therapy dog in the courtroom to help keep Kalebu calm. Following yet another outburst at the next hearing in which Kalebu tried to fire not only his legal counsel but the judge too, he was dragged from the courtroom. Judge Hayden barred him from sitting in the court during the trial. The judge denied any further evaluations the defence requested, stating that while he did not disagree that Kalebu suffered from a mental illness, he still believed he was competent to stand trial. 3,000 jury summonses were sent out in order to find prospective jurors who had not heard about the case before. That was reduced during voir dire proceedings where both the defence and prosecution could ask potential jurors questions that they felt would reveal any bias that would impact their judgement on the case. The trial began on June 6, 2011. Isaiah Kalebu was barred from the courtroom and had to watch the trial remotely from another room in the courthouse. King County Senior Prosecutor Brian MacDonald delivered his opening statement to the court. He detailed the crimes Kalebu was accused of and the charges the defendant was facing. Kalebu was charged with aggravated murder, first-degree murder, attempted murder, rape and burglary. Attorney MacDonald told the jury that Kalebu had repeatedly raped Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper, all while holding on to a large knife. For 90 minutes, they endured brutal sexual assaults. Both women were subdued by the fear that if they did not comply, their loved one would die. The defence declined the opportunity to make an opening statement. Witness testimony began with Jennifer Lutz, who lived across the street from Teresa and Jennifer. She had been feeding her newborn baby in the early hours of the morning when she heard the sound of glass breaking. When she looked outside, she saw someone fall through the broken window at the front of the couple's home. Jennifer Lutz testified that she had called 911 and watched as people ran to Teresa who was lying on the ground. 
She recalled Jennifer's screams as she was taken from Teresa's sight and placed into an ambulance. Officer Thomas Berg, the first officer at the scene that night, spoke as the jury was shown dashcam footage. Officer Berg spoke about seeing Jennifer in the street. He said, She was naked other than a piece of cloth she held to her neck and across her body. I was amazed that she was conscious and alert, and not in shock yet because it looked like someone had dumped a bucket of blood all over her body. Witnesses who were there that night also testified. Officers Wengard and Dela Cruz, who also cleared the house, the canine handling officer Downing and EMTs. Neighbours who had rushed to help spoke too. On June 8th, Jennifer Hopper began her testimony. That morning, Kalebu had told his attorneys that he wanted to be in the courtroom, but refused to get dressed, so he was not permitted. Jennifer described her life with Teresa and the type of woman her partner was. Jennifer said that Teresa was tough, and if she did not like something, she would let you know. The witness told the court that Teresa had this, quote, tender heart and an incredible capacity to help people out. When the prosecution began to ease into questions about the night of the attack, they asked about coverings on the windows and if silhouettes could have been seen from outside. Jennifer described the assault in detail speaking not only about the physical attack but her fear throughout. Both Jennifer and Teresa had been subdued by the threat that Kalebu would kill the other if they did not comply. Jennifer said that Teresa prayed aloud, and she prayed silently. With each inward breath, she would say, Please, God. And as she exhaled, she would say, Let us live. Please, God, let us live. And she told the court Kalebu had said, quote, That was just round one. Jennifer was asked how many rounds there were. She replied, three. Jennifer Hopper recalled the moment the assailant, who she positively identified as Isaiah Kalebu, led them from the bedroom to another room to get a second knife. She said, I remember seeing him, and there was a moment we just stood there and he kind of looked at us, and I feel like in that moment I knew he's going to kill us. I just knew. I just felt it. There was something different in his gaze. I didn't feel fear from him. I didn't feel anger from him. I just felt nothing. Jennifer Hopper's testimony was split over two days, across a total of six hours. When she completed telling the jury the harrowing details, she was cross-examined by Kalebu's attorneys. Defence attorney Brandis seemed to try and make Kalebu seem somewhat sympathetic. Brandis said, You've described some very hard actions that you had to suffer through and some callousness from this man. 
but there were times when he wasn't entirely callous. Jennifer replied that she didn't believe that. An attorney Brandis asked, Well, how about when he let you give Teresa the water? Jennifer answered, So she can better use her mouth on him. I don't see that as not being callous. Attorney Brandis then asked about the times Kalebu had petted or stroked her during the ordeal. Jennifer defiantly responded, How is it not callous to stroke a rape victim who doesn't want to be stroked? That's not kindness. That was probably the worst part for me. More witnesses for the state were called to give testimony, including the doctors who had treated Jennifer Hopper, the medical examiner who had performed Teresa's autopsy, and Washington State crime lab analysts who attested the evidence. Analyst Tara Roy testified about the DNA evidence from the crime. DNA testing of sperm collected from Jennifer Hopper's body produced a profile that matched an individual in the CODIS database. That profile was from a blood sample of an unknown male from an unsolved 2008 break-in at Auburn City Hall. After Isaiah Kalebu's arrest, a buccal swab was taken and compared with the DNA from the Auburn break-in, and the DNA found at Teresa and Jennifer's home and on their bodies. The samples were declared a match at all 13 DNA sites tested. This estimated probability of randomly selecting an unrelated individual with the same profile is an incredible 1 in 13 quintillion. On the fourth week of testimony, Kalebu's mother Denise testified to confirm that she had identified her son in the footage from the Auburn break-in. She had called and told the police, Don't kill him. That's my son. Outside of court, Denise spoke with reporters that she did not believe her son was competent to stand trial. She said, Honestly, in my heart, don't believe he did it. And if he did, he had a psychotic break. The following day, the trial was halted after Kalebu swallowed a pencil and was taken to hospital. When the trial resumed, the defence's case was outlined with more clarity than it had been previously. Instead of pursuing a diminished responsibility defence, they would pursue general denial and try to discredit the prosecution's case. But not once had they denied Isaiah Kalebu was responsible. The defence contended that even if Kalebu was the attacker, it did not mean that the attack was premeditated. They said that it only occurred as an impulse reaction to the victim's resistance. Isaiah Kalebu now decided that he wanted to testify in his own defence. At hearings outside the presence of the jury, he said that he wanted to come to court dressed in a grand dragon robe or the American flag. This request was denied, and Kalebu was asked if he would behave during his testimony. He replied, I will do my utmost to communicate effectively. 
The defence believed it was unfair for Kalebu to testify while restrained and wearing an anti-suicide smock. But Judge Hayden did not want to take any chances. Kalebu tried to reason with the judge by saying he would not attack his, quote, dubious defence team. The defendant would have to wear a bandit, the armband taser device, and would be shackled to a restraint chair during testimony. But he could cover both with civilian clothes. On June 29th, Isaiah Kalebu was brought into the courtroom and seated across from the jury. His attorneys could not ask him many questions as they had not presented any evidence. They had just relied on the prosecution's burden of proof. He was asked if he knew anything about the events of July 19th, 2009 on South Row Street, and he replied, I was there, and I was told by my God and God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to attack my enemies. I did so. I followed the instructions by God. Kalebu's attorneys then asked him if he had been diagnosed with a mental illness. He replied that he had several times. The jury were instructed to disregard that piece of testimony as an insanity defence was not being pursued. Then the jury were hastily dismissed after Kalebu's attorney moved away from him suddenly. Once the jury were outside, she told the court that she could hear the sound of Velcro tearing. Kalebu was trying to remove the bandit. In the prosecution's closing argument, they went through the events of July 19th again. Deputy Prosecutor James Kanat asked the jury to convict Isaiah Kalebu of all five counts against him. Kalebu's attorney attempted to discredit the prosecution's evidence. As mentioned in legal documents released after the trial, the defence argued that, quote, According to Jennifer, butts had already been cut when Kalebu brought them to another room to get the knife, yet they insisted there was a total absence of any blood inside that central bedroom. Counsel argued it was therefore unlikely Jennifer's testimony on this particular point was credible. Moreover, Kalebu had repeatedly reassured the women he was not there to hurt them, and according to the defence, prior to the women resisting, Kalebu had not acted like an individual with murder on his mind. They said he apologised to Jennifer when he accidentally touched the knife tip on her arm and he told them he would be gone before they were picked up for the fictitious wedding Jennifer had mentioned and before they called the police. Counsel focused on this evidence in arguing there was no stabbing or intent to harm until the women began to resist. All of Teresa's wounds were to her front, meaning that Kalebu did not pursue her or cut her further as she got out of bed, picked up the small table and escaped through the window. Similarly, Kalebu stopped cutting Jennifer when Teresa ran from the home. He allowed her to simply leave the home through the front door. The defence believed that the jury should find Isaiah Kalebu guilty of lesser offences as neither the murder nor attempted murder had been premeditated. 
Premeditation is the thought given to an action before it is carried out. It occurs when a person forms an intent to kill someone. If someone carries out a murder immediately after deciding to, it is still classed as premeditated. The jury were given the option of finding Kalebu guilty of second-degree murder, which lacks the elements of premeditation. Still, they were not given the choice of finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury was sent to deliberate at the end of June after a four-week trial. Two days later, they returned with a verdict. On July 1st, 2011, the jury found Isaiah Kalebu guilty of aggravated premeditated murder in the first degree and felony murder, which was committed in furtherance of the first degree rape of Teresa Butts. Kalebu was also found guilty of first degree attempted murder and rape in the first degree for the attack carried out on Jennifer Hopper. Lastly, jurors found him guilty of burglary in the first degree. All counts were committed with a deadly weapon, sexual motivation and deliberate cruelty. The King County Chief Criminal Deputy Prosecutor Mark Larson said, A verdict doesn't fix anything, but it's still an important statement for our community. We're grateful, but the pain doesn't go away. Isaiah Kalebu was not present in the court for the verdict, having been sent back to the room where he watched the trial remotely. Following the verdicts and prior to the sentencing hearing, which was scheduled for August 2011, Jennifer Hopper identified herself publicly for the first time in a powerful article called I Would Like You to Know My Name which was published in the Stranger newspaper. She wrote, For the past two years I have been known as the surviving victim of the South Park rapes and murder, or simply as Butts' partner, and for the most part I have been grateful for the protective bubble given to me by the media. But I am now ready to be known in a new way. At first I was afraid to be known more fully, Over time, it became more about protecting my professional life. Most recently, I felt that revealing my identity might somehow cloud the focus of the trial of Isaiah Kalebu, the man who on July 1st was found guilty of entering uninvited as we slept into the home that Teresa and I shared in South Park, where he raped us, murdered Teresa and attempted to murder me. It didn't matter who I was. I thought as I went through this process. I was known by name to my family and my friends, but anonymous to the general public. And that was fine. The only thing that mattered was what had happened, who was lost. Today at 38 I find myself craving to have my identity back. I am prepared to have my name enter the public realm. I know this may be naive, but I believe I should be able to be fine in my professional life, my whole life really, and have it been known that this happened to me. 
In fact, having learned how to survive this may even have made me stronger and more able to manage the normal workday ups and downs. Mostly, I no longer want to give off the impression that I'm afraid to be known, or that I might be ashamed of anything that happened that night. I am not afraid. I am not ashamed. In the article, Jennifer Hopper praised the coverage of the case by Eli Sanders in The Stranger as being a three-dimensional picture of the trial and the crime itself. Jennifer said that while she was glad the trial was over and Kalebu was facing a mandatory life sentence, she still longed for the innocence she experienced before Kalebu entered her life and took Teresa from her. At the sentencing hearing, Jennifer and Teresa's family members were given the opportunity to deliver victim impact statements prior to the sentence being handed down. Teresa's father, Norbert Sr., said, In my wildest dreams, I thought I would never have an experience like this, and I've had a lot of experiences in my life. But Teresa was the ninth gift from God out of eleven of our children, and to know her was to love her. She was really a blessing by God, and it's one that Isaiah took from us, and he didn't have a right to do that, but he did it, and we're living with that. He took her life, but he couldn't take her spirit and her soul. She still lives with us daily, We have a tree planted in our backyard. It's called Teresa's tree. And I watch it grow every day. And that's a blessing. Teresa's brother Jim Butt spoke about his faith. He was in the process of becoming a pastor. He told Isaiah Kalebu, I don't know you, and you don't know me, and we're just two human beings and I don't know your backstory. I have no right to judge you. I don't. I swear I know that's true, and I'm dead serious. I've prayed for you every single day since this happened. Galebi thanked him, and Jim told him that he hoped he would see him in heaven. Galebi replied, I'll be there. God bless. Jennifer thanked the judge and jury for listening. She thanked her family and friends for their love and protection, and she thanked the media for leaving her alone. She also thanked Kalebu's mother Denise for her honesty and bravery in the courtroom, and said she was sorry her family had been destroyed by it too. Addressing Kalebu, Jennifer said, I realise that there may be nothing I can say to you, because I did beg you for my life and she begged you for her life. And I tried to show you our humanity and any shred of goodness that I was hoping you could see, and it didn't matter that day. So I can't understand how it would matter today, but I do say to you that I do wish you peace, and I do not hate you, and I'm so sorry for whatever it is in your life that brought you to this. I tried to show you humanity and any shred of goodness you could see. I wish I could say to you that I've not been broken. I actually wrote the words down on a piece of paper. 
that yes, you took so much from me, but I am not broken. But pieces of me are, and will always be. But I will fight every day of my life to be as whole as I can. That I promise you, and I promise everyone here. But I wish you no harm. I never wanted you put to death. I don't seek revenge. I don't want anything bad to happen to you in prison, nothing. I wish you peace every last day of your life. That's all I have to say. As the judge began his sentencing remarks, he spoke about attending a wedding in the days prior to the hearing. He wished that Jennifer could one day be officially married if Washington legalised same-sex marriages. Isaiah Kalebu interrupted and began to spout a torrent of homophobic abuse and went on to say, See, what's going to happen is first we have gay marriage, then the polygamists are going to piggyback on that. So we have gay marriage and then we have polygamy. We have polygamy. All the Muslims who are polygamists are going to bring their five wives and 25 kids over here and then boom, it's a Sharia country just like that. The prosecutor had said that it was a case of extreme deliberate cruelty that cried out for an exceptional sentence. The judge imposed the mandatory sentence of life in prison by using the defendant's life expectancy of 73 years and added a 98-year sentence on top of that. The judge explained that the extra term was largely symbolic. However, like Jennifer and Teresa's commitment ceremony, symbols can still hold a significant meaning to those involved. Isaiah Kalebu was also ordered to pay $40,000 in restitution to Teresa's family. Isaiah Kalebu's defence counsel filed an appeal following his conviction. Now that the case was closed, Pierce County Sheriff's detectives said that they would continue to investigate the fire that killed Rachel Kalebu and J.J. Jones. Kalebu's appeal was heard in 2014. The contention was that Kalebu may not have testified if he had known that there had been a discussion in the judge's chambers about his request to testify. It was decided that Kalebu would not be questioned by his counsel. The appellate judges found that, quote, Kalebu's claim that he might have reconsidered testifying had he heard the discussion in the chambers is without merit. Kalebu's identity as the attacker was proven multiple times by overwhelming forensic evidence, including his footprints at the foot of the bed in the bedroom where the attacks occurred his palm print on the dresser in that room, his fingerprint and palm print on the bathtub where the intruder entered, his footprint on a document in the hallway, DNA matching Kalebu on the khaki shorts he used to wipe himself, on swabs from two areas on each of the women attacked, and on two locations on the boxer shorts left by Kalebu when he left. Kalebu was also identified by the surviving victim. The appeal was dismissed, and Isaiah Kalebu's conviction was affirmed. 
Teresa Butts' brother Norbert Jr. won a Tony Award for his performance in the Broadway showing of the musical he had postponed following his sister's murder. Norbert and Jennifer continue to work with the Angel Band Project. Jennifer Hopper moved in with her mother. Shortly after Kalebu was convicted, her stepfather passed away. Together, mother and daughter began to rebuild their lives. In 2012, Eli Sanders, the writer who covered the case in The Stranger newspaper, won a Pulitzer Prize for his article, The Bravest Woman in Seattle, which detailed Jennifer Hopper's ordeal, resilience and harrowing testimony at the trial. Sanders went on to write a book on the case which not only talks about the crime, but Kalebu's background and the mental health system in America. In July 2019, Jennifer was interviewed by Nicole Brodeur, writing for the Seattle Times. She spoke about her life after Teresa and how she had forgiven Kalebu, not for his benefit, but for her own. Jennifer worked with survivors of sexual violence and conducted talks with members of the emergency services. Isaiah Kalebu was held at Walla Walla Correctional Facility until 2014, when he was moved following an incident where he was found guilty of sexually harassing a member of staff. Kalebu is currently incarcerated in Washington State, following some time in Clallam Bay Correction Centre. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. Listening.